So the question on the table is really whether or not this is beneficial for a country like Kenya or if China is really acting as a new colonial power. It is the week of February 23rd, and welcome to episode 13 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today, we have some of our usual suspects, former congressional staffers who worked on foreign policy, Dana Struhl and Jody Herman. Also joining us for the second week in a row is our guest, Andy Kaiser, who's a fellow at NSI, and I'm Lester Munson, a senior fellow at NSI. This week, we're discussing U.S. and Chinese strategic competition in Africa. With 1.2 billion people, Africa is the world's second largest continental landmass. It's nearly twice the size of Russia. It's got 54 different countries. It's big, complicated, rich in human, natural, and energy resources. It's home to many developing but fast-growing economies. Let's look at the Chinese position first. China's all over Africa, investing in infrastructure, loaning money, building hotels, communications networks, taking over fishing industries. It is now the most important outside player on the continent, at least in the economic sense. China's security footprint is also growing with a huge Navy base in Djibouti, interestingly, where the U.S. also has a military base. And that base in Djibouti will extend China's power projection capability into the Horn of Africa and the Indian Ocean. Jody, talk a little bit more about what we're looking at with uh, China in Africa. Right. It's hard to actually underestimate both the size and the impact of China's engagement in Africa right now. Uh, China is far and wide the largest investor uh, in Africa, and they are also uh, their largest trade partner, right? The United States comes in third in that equation, China, the EU, and then the United States. And you can see this present all over the continent. So just for example, in a couple of places in Kenya, China built a rail line from Nairobi to Mombasa, reducing the time for this really critical journey to carry products to port from 12 hours on a train to four and a half hours on a train, basically taking what was a couple-day trip and turning it into a day trip to New York City in order to move your your goods uh, out of the country, is the biggest infrastructure project in Kenya since Kenyan independence. And China is literally running the train there. Uh, There are some locals working for the railway, but really it's mostly Chinese mostly Chinese workers uh, on the rail line. And the reason I add that is, well, obviously adding this infrastructure for Kenya is really important for them. It's a way to get goods to port. It also isn't necessarily the economic boon that they thought it would be, right? So they're not employing a lot of locals. So the question on the table is really whether or not this is beneficial for a country like Kenya or if China is really acting as a new colonial power. China has invested huge amounts of money, but is also owed very large sums of money by these countries. For example, with Kenya, uh, China is now owed $5 billion. That's three quarters of Kenya's total debt owed to a single country. And it's unclear if Kenya is unable to pay that at some point in time, what exact price China will demand from Kenya in return. If you were to take, for example, the port that China built in Sri Lanka, right, and then Sri Lanka was unable to pay that loan, China came back and said, that's okay. You don't have to repay it. How about you just give us a 99-year lease for your port instead of repaying the loan? And if you think that's a fair trade, 
I think you have to reconsider what the security situation is in Africa for the United States and whether or not the United States ought to be doing more in this space. So uh, Beijing convenes African heads of state every year in China. It's a big it's a big deal. There's a lot of diplomacy that goes on between the Chinese and African countries. Three years ago, the Chinese government said it would invest $60 billion over three years in Africa. It's a ton of money in the African context. Why is China doing that? What's the what's the driving force behind China making that kind of investment in, in sub-Saharan Africa? Dana. So a lot of times we tend to think about when China makes these announcements that it's foreign aid or foreign assistance the way the United States makes pledges of assistance. This is not altruistic on the part of China. They are looking around the world. They are looking at the Chinese government um, their own population security. How are they going to feed their their growing population? Uh, they have a population that wants to purchase more and also needs uh, markets for its own exports. And China is also looking at its military power. So Les mentioned the military base in Djibouti, but this is also about port access. And this is also about crowding out would-be competitors like the United States. So these are our nascent countries, as you noted, less fast, fast growing. Um, and they're looking for partners and they're in need of, of dollars to invest in their own infrastructure. And, and China's there. Um, this is about China securing its own needs and maintaining its own spheres of influence. And preferentially, as Jody mentioned, the, these debt traps, which is at some point these countries are going to find out that they're not able to completely repay, that these infrastructure projects did not generate employment for their own populations. There may be some issues to work out in terms of what these governments have actually committed to. And the Chinese are going to come extracting and expecting preferences and concessions on all sorts of issues that perhaps the leaders in a lot of these countries in Africa uh, weren't thinking about when they made the original agreements. So the Chinese economy itself is uh, running a massive trade surplus with the rest of the world. There's a ton of uh, Chinese products going out, and there's a lot of money coming into China. China has to spend that money somehow or invest it somehow. They can only do so much domestically without overheating their own economy. So, so I think part of the reason you're seeing China invest so much in Africa is, frankly, they've got surplus money they have to invest somewhere, and they need to put it to, to use. So, so, Andy, what's your... What's your take on this? China's investing in a bunch of different sectors, infrastructure, entertainment, telecommunications. Aside from the fact that it's good for them to get this money out of out of China to a certain extent, what's what's in it for them when they're making these kinds of investments in China? Yeah, so I think it's it's multi-pronged. Uh, two primary purposes, of course, the the economic side, and and that's not just trade. It's it's uh, fulfilling their own. Uh, needs as a as the world's second biggest economy, whether that's uh, food needs, resources like oil, uh, rare earth minerals that are powering the next generation of technologies are all abundant in Africa and largely up for grabs. So the Chinese came in to exploit that situation. They uh, do everything from you know straight up offer bags of cash, which uh, has been known to find some success in places in Africa. To um, to offering 
these massive infrastructure projects, as we've discussed, where the arrangement is uh, can be something to the akin of, you know, if you if you miss a payment, we own your port, um, which, you know, I do think some some nations are beginning to regret those those relationships, but they might be stuck. So you have the situation where it's sort of Africa uh, is largely a, a jump ball um, between I'll call I'll say the West, the EU combined with the United States and, and China, and you have a, a governance competition occurring there, uh, which includes Chinese brand of authoritarianism against sort of uh, Western style democracy, um, which is 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 up in the air and and ebbs and flows across the continent. And then, of course, you have the geopolitical. Um, you have China building their first. Uh, overseas military base, as as Les mentioned, a 15 minute drive from a major U.S. presence in in Djibouti, um, and from there they are intending to project power in a way we haven't seen um, seen in the past. So you have these two competing dynamics on the economic side and the geopolitical side uh, across this vast continent. So Jody, let me. Uh kind of play devil's advocate a little bit. If China's China's got all this surplus money, yes, there are some things of concern, and I don't think we want to see China expand its military uh, uh, sphere of influence that much farther than it already is. But if China wants to invest in infrastructure in Africa, if it wants to build some roads and maybe enhance some ports and airports and uh, build a few soccer stadiums, is that so bad? I mean, this is this is kind of what we want in a multipolar world. We want everyone to trade with each other. We want not everything to have to go through the United States. Is this, is this really so bad? So I think the question that we need to toil with is whether or not China is just investing for its own economic profile or if it's also buying political legitimacy through its investments. And I think most people would tell you that they are, right? When China invests in your country, the first thing that has to happen, by the way, is that you have to make sure that you're recognizing the one China policy and that you don't have a diplomatic relationship with Taiwan, but extends far beyond Taiwan, right? So they're basically also buying these countries' silence on on issues like Tibet, the coronavirus uh, what's happening, uh, protests in Hong Kong and the situations facing the Uyghurs uh, in Western China. Yep. It's not only about economics. And so the United States has to decide how they want to engage on this issue, right? And the problem right now is we're not actually putting the same type of development opportunities on the table that the Chinese are, right? So we have some tools that we can use, U.S. assistance, uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, we have a new tool uh, through the International Development Finance Corporation, but we are not ready or willing to invest in the same types of billion-dollar infrastructure projects that, that China is. So, all right, let me, let me pose another devil's advocate question, Dan, and maybe you want to answer this one, which is, um, you know, China's making these investments. There are some consequences that are of concern, but it's not like you can take a port and take it away from the country. It's still going to be there. Yes, African countries may vote with China on a few things at the UN, or they may recognize Beijing instead of Taipei, and I suppose that's of concern at a certain point. But the African countries that are developing, they're looking for help from the outside. If China's willing to give them some, I think they'll probably say yes to what they're offering. I think they'll probably say yes to the United States if that's what they're offering. They're happy to play both sides against each other. How much how much should we be worried about what China's doing if we know that at the end of the day, if the U.S. makes an offer, it's likely to be accepted from African countries? 
I think it depends on how the behavior of these countries and how they interact with the United States is or is not implicated or affected by their relationships with China. So the question is, um, if loans are not able to be repaid or if the Chinese uh, begin to demand certain types of behaviors or transactions with the United States because they built that port or because they built that railway, then we have a problem. So, for example, China is building the uh, 5G networks in Africa. So does that limit, curtail, or threaten how the United States operates either militarily, diplomatically, et cetera, in African countries? Does it threaten the security of intellectual property of our uh, private sector companies operating in Africa? These are questions that I don't think we necessarily know the answer to. Another one is um, port access. Does port access get limited for U.S. customers, U.S. companies, U.S. military, Navy visits, for et cetera, because they were built by China and these, these countries can't repay those loans? Is there preferential treatment or prioritization in how those ports are used? In other words, are some of these infrastructure projects weaponized in a way that disadvantages the United States. And these are some of the questions. And then again, at the halls of the UN, as Jody mentioned, um, in terms of a Chinese interest in the system of government. So here's another one, bags of cash, which was mentioned earlier. So first of all, this is, we should say, not unique to Africa, bags of, of cash and 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 corruption and, and how people A lot people of it in skim. Chicago. Absolutely, <laughs> right? But the Chinese government has a different view of what they would like the world order to look like. And if they use their relationships and the business they're doing in Africa to tip all of those countries, many of which are trending toward more representative or more democratic forms of governance in many of the countries in Africa toward a techno-authoritarianism, which we discussed in one of the previous podcasts. What does that mean for the U.S. ability to have strategic partnerships with those countries? And I think that's where the crux of the strategic challenge of China's interest in Africa lay. Andy, uh, let's let's pull out a thread from something Dana mentioned, uh, telecommunications. Huawei, uh, the Chinese parastatal, has made a lot of inroads in Africa, probably more than any other region of the world. How much is that a concern for U.S. national security? So it's ap- absolutely a concern uh, broadly in, in Africa. Um, they're so embedded. Um, I, I worry that that case is largely largely lost on due to a, a, a number of factors. Um, the Chinese around the world, and particularly in Africa, are good about showing up with a package that includes things like, we will build out your entire telecommunications infrastructure with no payments for three years. No, no other vendor could possibly offer uh, something like that, which gets U.S. U.S. policymakers and and China hawks like most, you know, like us sitting around the table here, asking the question, you know, why on earth? How could they do this? Uh, what company could take these kinds of losses, and why would they be doing this if they don't have a profit motive? So, um, but throughout the continent, there's no question that uh, the Chinese have been super active on this this question of uh, telecommunications they infa- infamously uh you know not so generously offered to build the african union's telecommunications network at no cost 
And later, uh, good media reporting uncovered essentially all of that data was being transferred back to Beijing. So sure, we'll, we'll go ahead and build it for you. We're going to keep an eye on absolutely everything you're doing. Thank you very much. Um, and you see this happening uh, around across the continent in the, in the telecommunications infrastructure also includes uh, some of their other goodies, uh, as we've mentioned, like keeping an eye on dissidents and protesters and monitoring uh, um, those who seek to undermine the regime or, or the key participants in it. So it's a, sort of a, a package deal of bad stuff. So let's turn now to how the U.S. is responding to the, the challenge of China in Africa. The Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, was in Africa just a few days ago. He went to three countries, predictably one in West Africa, Southern Africa, and East Africa. He went to Senegal, Angola, and Ethiopia. At the end of the trip, he warned Africans about, quote, authoritarian regimes, unquote, presumably China, that want to take advantage of them. Uh, So the U.S. is starting to pay a little more attention at the higher levels under John Bolton, uh, the now-departed National Security Advisor, the Trump administration announced the Prosper Africa Initiative as a way of promoting U.S.-Africa economic ties. Does anyone think the Trump administration has a coherent response to this Chinese challenge in Africa? Dana. So I don't think the Trump administration has in what I would describe as a coherent response to the challenge of China in general. So as it applies to Africa... Not really either. The Prosper Africa Initiative was an interesting attempt at house cleaning and harmonizing and unifying all the disparate U.S. departments and agencies that have different kinds of of China engagement, China trade, China economic partnerships, and trying to harmonize them into something that appeared to be more strategically coherent. It's not more money. It's not um, empowering the State Department or our embassies to have a more active approach uh, in Africa. So, so not necessarily, although, because this is the Fault Lines podcast, I would give a lot of credit to Congress here. This is where Republicans and Democrats in Congress have actually come together on very significant pieces of of, uh, legislation to make the United States uh, more competitive in how how it uh, approaches Africa. And a good example of that is the BUILD Act. Act, which expands what was the old OPEC, the Overseas Private Investment Corporation, into the New Development Finance Corporation. And the idea there is to create a more agile, uh, more active engagement policy so that it's not just about foreign aid and foreign assistance, but it's also about how the United States engages economically. Jody. So I think the issue we have right now is the totality of our messaging is not convincing on the African continent, right? The Pompeo trip was important. Uh, but it followed President Trump issuing visa bans on a variety of African countries, Nigeria, Tanzania, Eritrea, and Sudan, just weeks before, as well as the announcement of a possible realignment of U.S. troops in Africa and unclear support for the African Growth and Opportunity Act. So I think those messages in totality have to make African leaders wonder about whether or not the U.S. intends to be seriously invested on the continent economically and politically, and that message is quite unclear at the moment. Andy, do you find a fault line there? 
I, I find a fault line within the administration itself generally on foreign policy, and I think you see that playing out in Africa. So I think you see folks interested in global engagement and the national security professionals uh, highly concerned about Africa for a number of reasons. Um, you know, we forget Boko Haram's activity. We forget, you know, failed uh, states or failing states, very weak governance that uh, lends itself to situations like what we saw in Mali where the French – uh, came in and, and the Americans after uh, to fill those vacuums fighting fighting terror. Um, so I think you see those those two uh, strands of thought within the administration crashing into each other, the sort of Jared Kushner versus you know Stephen Miller view of the world, um, both in the in the trade, in the military and diplomatic engagements playing out. To be fair though, I would say I, I think the administration's core problem is a lack of a sustained focus on the problem, which is not unique to this administration. So uh, one of one of the reasons uh, Africa gets short shrift is because simply the U.S. doesn't have as many interests at stake in the continent as it does in other places like the Middle East, in China itself, in Europe for sure. Africa invariably is a second or a third tier issue until it's not. And there's a there will be a terrorist attack. There'll be an epidemic. There will be uh, an economic opportunity that's unexploited by the U.S. and exploited by others, and suddenly African concerns rise to the top, and that that kind of neglect, whether it's from the Trump administration or other administrations, kind of rises to the top, and we realize that we've got to kind of scramble around and, and patch things up. Dana, what's your, what's your sense of the realization in the administration now? Pompeo did go. Is there... It looks like they're not going to walk back U.S. military commitments on the on the continent after Congress objected. Do you think there is a, a like a new dawn or eyes being opened in the administration on Africa right now? I am humble and ever trying to read the tea leaves of exactly what the thinking is inside the administration. To be fair to the current administration, I agree with you, Les. The, the size of the commitment or the mix of capabilities we are willing to invest in Africa has always been a second tier compared to the Middle East. And then when you think about whether it was the Obama administration and the Asia-Pacific rebalance, the Trump administration talks about great power competition. Either way, one of the takeaways or conclusions of both administrations is that this somehow implies a lessening of the investment in Africa. So the Obama administration concluded that they could have a what they called a light footprint, but a mix of unique capabilities to assist security forces in Africa in dealing with their counterterrorism challenges. The Trump administration has largely continued that trend. What appeared to happen is that the Defense Department and looking out how to reprioritize and how to shift capabilities into the Asia-Pacific, or they call it the Indo-Pacific theater, the idea was to zero out our, our military footprint in Africa, which actually doesn't work in the sense of great power competition and seeing Africa or the Middle East as theaters in which great power competition is happening. And that does not mean that you have to deploy tens of thousands of U.S. forces. You can continue this light footprint, but presence and engagement and different ways of of, uh, creatively making U.S. presence and commitment known, I think, is going to be very important. Jody, you mentioned the BUILD Act. The BUILD Act was one of the seminal I would say, foreign policy successes of the last two, three years. Republicans supported it. Democrats supported it. 
the administration very quickly, I think to their credit, supported the initiative. There's been a real emphasis on turning OPIC into the DFC and ramping up their activities and and at least beginning to provide an alternative to China's very kind of corruption, pro-corruption mercantilist approach where we're more pursuing rule of law, sensible investments, helping African countries and other countries attract real outside uh, investments that are going to help transform their economy over the long term. Is there is there another opportunity, maybe more specific on Africa, for Republicans and Democrats to come together to find a common cause with the administration and maybe have a more coherent policy going forward? I think there are probably three things that have to happen. The first one is exactly what you said, U.S. engagement through private investment through the International Development Finance Corporation, right? This is a really uh, critical effort by the United States to compete with China on some level, although it seems unlikely that we're going to be able to invest to the same level. We're not investing in billion-dollar infrastructure projects that we wouldn't otherwise find to be sustainable. We're talking about U.S. private sector investment and in the Development Finance Corporation supporting that private sector investment. So that's important. The second thing would be the renewal of the African Growth and Opportunity Act. So this is the trade agreement, longstanding trade agreement uh, between the United States and certain African countries that has allowed them to access the single largest market in the world, uh, the United States, over a period of time. Really critical for getting things like apparel and footwear to markets where they had been unreachable uh, before. So that has to be number two. That expires in 2025. And if we were to let go of AGOA, and it's unclear where this administration is headed on that front, if we were to let go of AGOA, not only would it disadvantage the businesses we've been working with for a very long time, it would send a horrible message about U.S. commitment to Africa. And the third thing is this idea of whether or not we're going to start engaging in free trade agreements. So the administration has mentioned the possibility or they're going to start talks with Kenya on a free trade agreement. I think I think that's great. But you said unless there were 54 countries on this continent, and it seems unlikely we're going to have 54 free trade agreements. Andy, what's your what's your take on the wisdom of the administration's approach on trade issues? It does seem like AGOA is a, is a sensible pragmatic, has a real benefit on the ground in Africa. It's been going on for 20, 25 years now. There's been real progress on a bunch of issues. Occasionally, there's some steps back with certain African countries. We fix them and move on. Now it looks like the administration is flexing to its bilateral-only trade deal scenario. And and Jody mentioned the the possible FTA between the U.S. and Kenya, which I know Kenya is very interested in. The U.S., appears to be very seriously engaged on that effort. Is that, a, is that a real practical way for the U.S. to deal with, with Africa in light of how aggressively China is pursuing the whole continent? You're right. So the administration is, is uh, uniquely focused on these bilateral trade agreements, um, which may or may not be the right path. Um, negotiating and getting through Congress 50 uh, three or four separate trade agreements um, in any time in the foreseeable future seems tough just from a scheduling perspective as far as floor time, if, if anything else, let alone all the complexities that go with that. That coupled with there's just so many uh, immediate uh, trade needs that are ahead 
uh, in the queue probably of a, of a U.S. Uh, Kenya FTA, uh, namely the United Kingdom being the most important that will uh, likely need to move forward uh, this year. So um, I think that's it's a tough course. It is a, an area I'd say the administration is very comfortable talking about economic engagement. Now they like it on their terms, uh, but expanding uh, access to uh, global markets for U.S. companies is something this administration bends over backwards to do um, all around the world. You just saw it uh, this weekend, uh, this past weekend with the President Trump's India trip. So one of the things China is doing in addition to its, uh, its loans and its uh, kind of shady investments in Africa is it's actually a lot of business deals with Africa. Uh, Chinese companies are specifically marketing products to African, to Africans, to African countries. They're selling cell phones for as cheap as $15. They're tailoring uh, television programming to African audiences. Some of this is just plain good business. And China's made us like a top-level decision in the, in the Chinese communist government that they are going to engage in a business sense with Africa. Is there, is there a way the U.S. can respond to that? Should there be some sort of industrial policy or like term that guides U.S. business, that provides incentives for U.S. businesses to actually meet the Africans where they live on the African continent and trade with them in a way that makes sense for Africans? Wes, I don't think I actually have an answer to this question other than to say we're not a state-controlled economy, right? We don't engage in a five- or ten-year central planning exercise, so I'm not sure that it's fair to compare the two the two states. Andy, didn't, didn't we – someone in the administration just suggested that the U.S. buy um, – uh, Ericsson and another phone company as a way to compete with Huawei, isn't so? There is there is some kind of discussion about a more proactive government involved business policy globally, right? I think that's right. No, there's a there's a consideration of as you mentioned state controlled uh, ownership as part of Nokia and Ericsson, um, though that was sort of quickly dispelled as something we don't do. Um, it, it is an advantage, frankly, of the Chinese system um, that they're able to, with uh, one meeting, uh, plan out the how they want to approach Africa. And one thing I think that's very hard for Americans to understand is the Chinese government certainly uh, makes no distinguish there's zero distinguishing between the private sector and the public sector they're they're one so when they show up um, with say something that that I um, know something about on the telecommunications front they show up not just with uh, Huawei offering to build a telecommunications network say in uh, in in Kenya, but they offer a suite of applications. They offer a suite of technologies. They offer a software package. They offer financing from the Chinese central bank. They offer absurd rates of of repayment that no other private sector company could make. So, you know, I think um, we don't want to. You know, I, I do like the line: "We you can't beat China by being more like China." Because I think at the end of the day, our innovation will 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 um, will carry the day as it has uh, throughout our history, including against uh, the Soviet Union. But um, at the end of the day, that doesn't mean we should take more careful stock uh, of our own industries and their importance to national security in particular. One thing um, 
little little preview that uh, I, I intend on calling for in a, in a future paper is perhaps we need to extend the defense industrial base to things like telecommunications infrastructure. If future networks uh, that are going to power our economy, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, quantum computing and the like are relying on a certain type of equipment, then shouldn't we ought to make sure that those are available to us in a secure way? Yeah, it certainly seems like uh, supply chain issues are, are becoming more and more paramount. All right. Uh, so we have solved all of the challenges and problems of Chinese involvement in Africa. Good work, everyone. Let's turn to the uh, the final part of the show where we talk about other issues we're following that may not be dominating the headlines these days. Dana, do you want to go first? Sometimes dominating the headlines, not always, are the upcoming elections in Israel next week. Interesting because this is the third time there will be elections in Israel uh, to elect a new parliament that would then agree on a prime minister, Bibi Netanyahu, the current prime minister. Um, so it seems the Trump administration has done everything possible to help uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu and the Likud party maintain his premiership in every single election. Uh, which, is, which was not the policy of the Obama administration, as I recall. Well, generally the, the policy of most Democratic and Republican administrations is not to interfere or take any actions that could not be perceived as attempting oh, okay. to influence okay. the elections. Not interfere at all. Okay. Anywho, this is interesting, mostly because at the same time that the uh, Trump administration has announced its vision for peace and prosperity, otherwise known as the deal of the century, otherwise known as the path to the very specific and detailed path to a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians living side by side in peace and security, there has also been a committee led by the U.S. Ambassador in Israel, David Friedman, along with members of Prime Minister Netanyahu's government to form a committee to explore what annexation of the West Bank would look like. All of this, of course, before there is an actual new government in Israel. Um, we don't know the outcome of the configuration of that parliament and whether or not uh, Bibi Netanyahu will be able to remain the prime minister and then whether or not there would be annexation of parts of the West Bank before there's an actual agreement on a two-state outcome, which could have ripple effects across the Middle East. Andy, what are you following? So uh, following recent public news reports that last year in 2019, the FBI created a foreign uh, influence task force, uh, particularly looking at the uh, activities of the Chinese Communist Party here inside of the United States. And we see those in, in tidbits, uh, one day stories, and they get everyone's interest. But when you look at them broadly, they are jaw dropping. Uh, so the most recent public case was uh, a major professor at Harvard found to have taken part in China's uh, now infamous Thousand Talents program, where they uh, select key researchers out of U.S. institutions, provide them training, and then send them back to their institutions. The interesting thing in the Harvard case, of course, is he was the professor uh, named was taking uh, significant amounts of cash from the Chinese and, and not reporting that. Uh, there have been smaller universities where this has, has been found. And uh, I'm going to uh, go ahead on, on the Fault Lines podcast here and uh, state with some confidence that that will not be the last case uh, that we hear. And of course, this, this university situation is, is merely only one 
uh, avenue by which uh, the Chinese target our own research and development here. We also have shaping of opinions at Confucius Institutes. We have infiltration of, of our uh, national laboratories. The list is long, but I'm glad to see the, the Bureau on the case. Jody. Right. So I'm watching President Trump's trip to India, not that it's not front page news, but I'm not watching it because Donald Trump is going to India. I'm watching it because of recent developments in India under Modi that are causing great concern about whether or not this great democratic state is becoming somewhat of an illiberal state, particularly in the context of religious freedom for Muslims. You'll recall we did a podcast uh, last fall about India's unilaterally eliminating the autonomous state of uh, of Kashmir, which is a majority uh, Muslim area. That followed in December, leading into protests presently with India adopting a Citizenship Amendment Act that fast-tracks citizenship for non-Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Buddhists, Christians, Jains, that arrived in India before December 2014. So not only does that act potentially disadvantage Muslims that arrive, there are musings that India may adopt a national citizen registry, as they already did in the state of Assam, that would require people to prove their Indian lineage, basically using old documentation that they will have to find on their own, and something that many Muslims feel that they will be unable to prove and that they will be unable to then establish their Indian nationality, meaning that you could potentially end up with scores of Muslims who are declared non-citizens and maybe end up in, you know, in, in refugee camps or in other places where India is looking to push them entirely out of the country. The situation is so severe, and I say that's because it's unusual. The U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom last week called this act a significant downturn in religious freedom in India. Remember, this is one of the world's oldest democratic states. Okay, I'm following coronavirus, which of course is all over the headlines, but in particular, I'm following the outbreak of coronavirus in Iran. This is one of the places where there's a secondary uh, epidemic emerging. Iran has been holding back on information that's coming out of the country about what's exactly going on with the virus. It looks like in the holy city of Qom, which is uh, very important for the Shia religion, uh, as many as 50 people have already died. Local politicians are already accusing uh, uh, national-level health officials of lying about what's going on in the country. So there appears to be some real dissent. It's a very sensitive area. And of course, as we know from other places, anything involving this kind of disease, if there's not total disclosure, ends up becoming very politically controversial very quickly. So watch uh, what's going on inside Iran on coronavirus. All right, that's a wrap. Um, Thanks for listening to episode 13 of Fault Lines, uh, which is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, please send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Jason Jennings for engineering our episode today, Claude Jennings for editing, Alex Morgan and Daniel Frank for research, and Grant Haver, as always, for production assistance. Thanks, and see you next week.